Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Over the past week or so, we've lost two feminist icons. Susan Ryan was Australia's first female Labor senator and later a minister in the Hawke government. She oversaw the passing of the Sex Discrimination Act in 1984, which outlawed discrimination on the basis of sex, marital status and pregnancy. And Susan went on to be a champion of gender equality and human rights more broadly as well, uh, more recently serving as the Age Discrimination Commissioner. And of course, we heard of the passing of global feminist icon Helen Reddy, the woman behind the song I Am Woman, which still remains an anthem of the feminist movement. To talk about the life and legacy of these women and their impact on Australian society and politics more broadly, I'm joined by Mary Crooks, Executive Director of the Victorian Women's Trust. Uh, great to have you back on the show, Mary. G'day, Dylan. I hope you've been well. I have, I have, in, in lockdown, but, um, but keeping busy, which has been, been pretty, pretty good. Um, firstly, let's start with Susan Ryan. How should we remember her and her achievements? Yeah, uh, Dylan, I think, you know, reading in the obituary since and the coverage in the media, uh, people quite rightly describe the kind of positions that she held, you know, first female Labor um, woman to be in Cabinet, uh, Education Minister, Youth Affairs, Special Minister for State and so on, uh, and the importance of the Sexual Discrimination Act, for example, that she championed. But I think, apart from simply acknowledging those ministerial obligations and contributions, I think it's really important to go straight to the context the social and economic and political context of that time uh, that Susan was negotiating um, as the first Labor uh, female um, cabinet minister. You know, this is back in the the 70s, for example, uh, there was the Royal Commission into Human Relationships. Homosexuality was illegal. Conditions were repressive for women. Uh, Divorce laws were harsh. The Federal Child Care Act had just been passed in in 72, marital rape was not criminalised um, until 1976 and then ni- through to 1994. The gender pay gap was huge in comparison with now, and it's, it's wide now. Women's refuges had only started to be established around the country in the Whitlam era. So, so Susan Ryan enters the federal political arena uh, where conditions for were still pretty repressive. Um, When she enters Parliament in 1983, for example, when she does become a minister, there's only six women, from my memory, six women in the lower house and about 15 in the Senate. So there were about 20 women in the National Parliament out of 200 or so MPs. So they were hardly a presence. Uh, And some of them noted in an article in the the other week, that Susan was often alone, but always fighting. Um, so, you know, she was very much uh, not only the only woman around the Cabinet, but there were very few women in the whole Parliament. Uh, there was no female High Court judge at that point. Every state and territory leader was male. Every opposition leader was male. Uh, the Convention Against Discrimination um, of Women uh, was only ratified by Australia in 1983. So what I'm trying to say, Dylan, is, you know, this is... She 
she, she wasn't a pioneer. She was continuing the, the sad legacy of women battling over decades to, to gain some presence in decision-making forums. But hers was a singular one because she got in there at the cabinet level in 1983 and started to pave the way for more women to follow suit. Yeah, I mean, also entered politics in the 70s as a 33-year-old single mother as well. So, you know, faced those additional barriers and, and challenges when she actually went into politics, which, of course, you know, generally wasn't the kind of experience that men would have had at that time. But, I mean, keeping in mind that sort of context, what sort of pushback do you imagine she would have experienced when she, for example, was trying to negotiate the Sex Discrimination Act and and pushing for these types of reforms um, towards a greater gender equality? Well, it's interesting because, I mean, Anne Summers, again, notes Susan's pragmatism. Uh, He felt, for example, that the Sex Discrimination Act, that it was crucial to at least get it up as legislation. But what, what finally was legislated was a much weaker version than what she had actually drafted. Mm private members bill and there were so many exemptions way back then you know um, uh, defense uh, religious organizations sports clubs schools uh, you know superannuation insurance although a lot of that has since been um, strengthened but she was pragmatic but she herself I thought was interesting uh, in something I read uh, when Hawke Bob Hawke died um, Susan wrote that he always had her back and she said she lost a lot of battles and budget bids and endured some tough treatment. But she said she never lost a debate in Cabinet through sexism and misogyny. I find that, you know, a little bit hard to believe, uh, maybe, but because Claire O'Neill wrote a couple of years ago that the Australian Parliament was toxic for women. Mm. So it might have become more... But But the main thing, I think, is that Susan Ryan... Uh, had an eye to to for pragmatism to try and break through in the knowledge that that might then start to open things up even more. Yeah, and, and as well as serving as the minister, assisting the prime minister for the status of women, she also served as the minister for education and youth affairs in, in the Hawke government. And I was watching a, a video of hers, a, a relatively recent video that was recorded where she spoke about her passion for education. Do you have a sense of, of her role and, and the emphasis, I guess, that she placed on making it easier for women to access and, and undertake education? Yeah, well, she was, she was certainly... You know, very, very strong about the uh, around the fee regime that was needed. You know, you couldn't have uh, a fee regime that mitigated against um, uh, equal access and um, access not just women but from from lower socioeconomic groupings. Um, she was passionate about educational attainment, and this was a time, you know, women really only started to to enter tertiary education. Uh, in very significant amounts through the 60s and the 70s. So she was, you know, she was riding that kind of wave. She just knew that uh, educational attainment uh, was key to unlocking opportunities for women and for everyone, really. So that was her bedrock. 
Yeah, and, and we've seen as well, and particularly the Labor Party move strongly towards achieving um, uh, equal representation of, of men and women across the party as well through Emily's List and, and that initiative. What was the significance of um, Susan Ryan uh, both entering politics and becoming a cabinet minister in Labor to the broader push for um, gender parity within that particular party, but, but the push for broader representation of women in politics across the board? Well, you know, it's very significant because she was breaking new ground and, you know, you will see photos back then in 1983, you know, the photo of the Cabinet uh, after the swearing-in, you know, and you see one woman, one woman in that Cabinet. But, you know, there were only six women in the House of Reps uh, and 15 in the Senate out of 200 or so. So these these women, not just Susan, but the other women, were still rarities and had nowhere near reached a critical mass. And we still haven't reached a critical mass except here in Victoria where there is gender parity around the Cabinet. But it's a slow march, Dylan, and it's almost two steps forward and one back. For example, you would have, you know, in non-parliamentary terms, you would have seen the evidence that, that um, women up in their representation in corporate worlds, that that's going backwards. And that's despite a big push over the years and male champion change and so on. So I guess the hard-won wisdom is that women's progress in these respects is is never assured. Yeah, and, and I guess having representation is an important thing and it, it's one thing, but there's also broader issues when it comes to the type of policy that's advanced to achieve greater gender equity. And I mean, we're going to see the federal budget delivered tonight and we know that women and, and young people have been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. I wonder what your sense is of, of what we've heard so far about whether there will be uh, the requisite support measures to ensure that we don't have kind of a disproportionate impact, for example, on women as a result of the, the pandemic. Yeah, I, I think I think one of the one of the um, the really unfortunate uh, flow-on effects of this pandemic is that it has exposed the. the themes of disadvantage that uh, affect women in our society uh, around childcare, around casualisation, around uh, the, you know, the larger number of unemployed and so on. And I think it's going to be a real tough time for women over the next couple of years. I, I'll be watching this budget with interest. I'm, I'm not convinced that this federal government has understood, for example, that childcare is not a women's issue per se. It is, it is a linchpin to economic recovery. I doubt whether we'll see any great reforms in that regard in this budget. I think all of the emphasis on infrastructure and investment and construction uh, is still likely to go into sectors of the economy uh, that don't directly start to make things better for women in employment. So I think it's a, it's a wait and see, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, like so many things. Speaking with Mary Crooks, Executive Director of the Victorian Women's Trust, we've been speaking about the life and legacy of Susan Ryan, but also we heard over the past week that Helen Reddy, the uh, woman behind that iconic anthem, I Am Woman, uh, passed away. And it's interesting to think, Mary, about the time that Susan Ryan entered politics, that I Am Woman would have come out just a few years before and, and you know, no doubt would have been still very much doing the Rounds um, just a few years later. How do you reflect on the importance and significance of that particular song to the feminist movement? Well, again, I think it goes to the context that we've talked about quickly. The, 
that that Helen Reddy's song uh, burst onto the scene in in the 70s uh, at a time when conditions were pretty repressive for women uh, in the home in terms of family violence, uh, in uh, decision-making forums, in the public domain. I think one of the most important things about Helen Reddy's song and her contribution uh, was against the flow. I mean, if anybody's read Mary Beard's wonderful essay, uh, insightful essay called The Public Voice of Women, you'll realise that, that there have been so many ways in which women have been over centuries silenced and, and denied a voice. And all of a sudden, here was Helen Reddy uh, using song and using a music um, platform to say, no, I, I, I won't be silent about being a woman and the conditions affecting women. That's the first point, that she, she, she broke with this tacit uh, force at work to actually have women keep their place and claim a voice. But importantly, Dylan, I believe that her song isn't dated either. I mean, it might not, it might not be in the same musical genre that people are now uh, used to, but there's nothing dated about the lyrics of that song. Mm. Uh, and, and I think, you know, as I say, when you've got... When you've got Claire O'Neill talking about a toxic parliament for women, you're still talking about a a massive part of the journey to go before women are respected as being half the population and being able to rightfully claim their place in every public sphere. Yeah, I was reading um, over the weekend a bit about the context um, within which Helen Reddy wrote and recorded that song, and she didn't expect it to be the the you know massive hit and and to have the kind of cultural significance that it did. And I, I wonder what your sense is. I mean, based on you know when you might have sort of first heard the song, what it is about it that meant that it caught on like wildfire and has endured as such a you know significant symbol of feminism. Well, Julie. I didn't expect her misogyny speech to resonate either. Mm. Uh, I guess the thing is that that you know there's an old there's an old saying, Dylan, that you only know oppression if you've been oppressed. And I guess the point of that is that the song resonated with women because it spoke a truth. Uh, Julia Gillard's speech about misogyny resonated with women, women who would never declare themselves publicly, for example, to. Be a feminist or even to be all that interested in gender equality, but they understood the truth of the matter. And Helen Reddy's song uh, spoke a truth about women's lives and the repression in their lives. Uh, and, and at the same time, it spoke to them about hope and about the fact that they, they had immense qualities and they had immense capacities and they were making immense contributions to their worlds. So both a, it was both a critique and a call a hopeful call. Yeah, and I think, as you say, it still remains so relevant today and and does there's a certain timelessness to, to the song as well. Um, before I let you go, Mary, you've always got so much going on uh, down at the Trust. What's keeping you busy at the moment? Well, I think we're sort of even busier uh, despite COVID, um, weirdly enough. <laughs> all keeping away working remotely. Um, look, I, I, there was an um, incredible... Uh, incredible session a few weeks ago, Dylan, I'd really urge people to look at, um, which was led by Jess Hill in a discussion with um, 
um, Fiona Hamilton and uh, Nicole Lee around agency and resistance um, and, and sort of reframing understanding and debate around victims of violence. That, that climb onto the Women's Trust website. But I'm excited because we've got something that um, is a bit out of left field and speaking of women's voices, um, we're launching this week um, a poetry podcast that we're proud of. We're co-hosted by a Melbourne woman, Hermina Burns, and a Brisbane woman, Ellen Van Neerven. Uh, and and we're hoping that with this will just provide a really amazing sort of balm for for people everywhere um, as, they're, as they're dealing with this pandemic, but to hear all this wonderful, inspiring poetry written by women and put recorded by Ellen and Amina is, I think, going to be really exciting. Yeah, fantastic. And so that'll be available by the, the usual kind of podcast platforms and your website, I imagine? Yes, it will. Yep. So yep. people just need to, to keep an eye out. It's called Between the Leaves. Uh, so it's got a lovely title yeah. to look for. Absolutely. Well, good on you, Mary. I hope um, you can get a bit of downtime. It sounds like you have been very busy over there. It's still important to, to take some time out, I suppose, and, and get away from the screen. That's something that I've um, definitely tried to do a little bit over the last few months. Always great to have you on the show and look forward to catching up again soon. Thanks a lot, Dylan, and you stay well. Yes, I will. You too. Mary Crooks there, Executive Director of the Victorian Women's Trust, talking all about the life and legacy of two extraordinary women, Susan Ryan and Helen Reddy. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. When you hear the term populism, what comes to mind? You might think of the particularly nasty, racist elements of Donald Trump's America, for instance, or maybe the exclusionary nationalism that accompanied the Brexit campaign, or even the anti-gay, anti-environment thrust of Jair Bolsonaro's supporter base in Brazil. Such negative connotations are common across our media landscape. But my next guest argues that this is misplaced, reflecting at best a misunderstanding about what populism is and, at worst, a deep distrust of ordinary people's political agency. Thomas Frank is an American political analyst, historian and journalist. Uh, The Australian version of his new book is entitled People Without Power, The War on Populism and the Fight for Democracy. And to chat about it all, he joins me on the line all the way from the US. Uh, Great to have you on Triple R, Thomas. Dylan, it is wonderful to be here. And why did you feel the need to mount a defense of populism right at this point in time? Well, so I come from um, a state in the very middle of America called Kansas. And uh, in Kansas was, was, uh, the, was the place where the word populism was coined back in the year 1891, and it was a place where the what was called in American history the populist movement uh, got going. This is the place where populism in America was uh, sort of at its peak. Uh, it was, uh, And so for us in Kansas, the word means something uh, real, and it means something serious, and it means exactly the opposite of the way the word is commonly used nowadays. And so when I started hearing the word uh, populism being used uh, as a sort of synonym for uh, racist demagogue or authoritarian, 
you know, I couldn't believe it. Uh, it was so frustrating to me. And so I had to write the book. And I mean, why is it that the meaning attached to populism has changed over time and, and now sort of represents in the uh, sort of public lexicon something very different to what it was intended to mean in the 1890s? So it, the, the way I look at it, it's always the words always had two meanings. The first meaning being the, the meaning that, you know, that was proposed by the people who coined the word uh, popul- the, the populists. And they were a kind of left wing farmer labor party. Their real name was the People's Party. Uh, but they populist was their, uh, their, their the, the word that they invented to describe their supporters. And they were very, very upsetting to the American elite of their day, to the people who owned this country, by which I mean like the railroad tycoons, Wall Street bankers, newspaper owners, people, you know, millionaires, people like that. And so they they built a kind of counter definition of the word where what populism meant was the sort of folly of working class people, uh, the sort of pathologies that go with, you know, that, that go with the lower orders and, uh, you know, like mob rule and, uh, you know, uh, being hypnotized by demagogues and uh, being anti-intellectual and all of this sort of thing, which was, it was not true. It was not a correct description of populism, but that was a sort of stereotype that the upper class in America built in order to beat populism down. Which they then, which they did, they actually succeeded in destroying the populist movement. Well, beginning in the 1950s, that sort of upper class definition of populism was embraced uh, instead of the, the sort of the elite of the 1890s or people to that today we would refer to as being extremely conservative. You know, these were the bankers and uh, millionaires and business tycoons, and they believed in, you know, uh, classical economics and stuff like that. Mm. It, basically, a form of of uh, uh, you know uh, divine right of kings almost, but in the 1950s their definition of populism as the sort of pathologies political pathologies of the lower orders, that definition got picked up by liberals, who are this you know by this very highly educated cohort of American intellectuals who were just then sort of coming into power in America. And they said, you know, no, that's that's actually a correct. They they used they started using the word populism as a generic term for all the things that can go wrong when um, when you have mass movements of working class people. And they added a couple uh, new ideas to the mix. They said that they were paranoid, um, that they were uh, racist, uh, xenophobic. Uh, that they were mistrustful, but then a lot of the sort of the the same elements as in the 1890s. They were mistrustful of big ideas from for that that came from the cities. Uh, they were, you know, uh, easily hypnotized, easily fooled. They were backward looking, this kind of thing, and it became. Uh, psychologized, let's put it that way, mm-hmm. and embraced by this kind of uh, liberal academic elite. Now, again, this is not a true description of the American movement known as populism, the people who invented the word populism. This is not a true description of who they were. But the American intellectuals of the 50s and ever since have found it useful to describe, uh, uh, you know, Uh, mass movements of working class people in this way. And so to what extent, I mean, to go back to 1890s Kansas, just for a moment, when there were, you know, a certain group of people describing themselves as populist, as sort of shorthand for the People's Party, to what extent was there a a truly kind of pluralistic and, and inclusive strain to their brand of politics? Oh, they were all about that. That was the whole idea. 
it was it was a it came out of a mass farmers movement and in, uh, probably one of the biggest mass movements in American history. It was called the Farmers Alliance. It had millions and millions of members, and uniquely among political organizations of their day, the populists had women leaders. This is before women had the right to vote in America, but they had. They had a number of, of uh, prominent uh, women leaders. They also, and this is again, was unique for the time, tried to bring together uh, 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 black farmers with white farmers in the South. So they were, uh, it's not like they were racial liberals by today's standards or that they were, you know, enlightened by, you know, th that they were multicultural by today's standards. They, they weren't. Almost nobody was back then. But by the standards of the day, they were, they were well ahead of the, ahead of the game. Yeah, and I mean, as I was reading your book, and and you know, I really enjoyed your book and, and learnt a lot from it. I was thinking, um, you know, to some extent, meanings do change over time, and and our language is kind of a you know an evolving thing. And so, perhaps what populism is uh, what today is something quite different to what it might have been to you know a, a group of people in the eighteen nineties. But your book, of course, is about much more than just semantics. It's about this kind of almost institutionalized distrust of the people which has crept into political orthodoxy and I mean your book is predominantly about the United States but but the the problem that you identify uh, relates to other political contexts as well and and the, the terms that we might use to describe particular forms of politics and, and forms of support for particular political leaders uh, how is it that, that we've come to this place where populism has come to mean something so different and, and particularly kind of a, a right-wing, very racialized style of, of politics. See, and that's a, that is the, exactly the question because you're right. I mean, the meaning of words do change, but what I want to point out, and this is something that you know you can't escape when you use the word populism, is that it the word populism brings a whole mythology with it in the way that it's used nowadays. And that mythology is inherently distrustful of mass democracy, distrustful of the people. Uh, there was, you know, in American history, and I'm sure the same is true in Australia, for a long time, there, uh, this country was dominated by people who, uh, who were not keen on the idea of universal democracy, on the idea of everybody having a vote and ordinary citizens being allowed to participate. A lot of American, sort of the ruling class of this country didn't like that. And at some point in our history, it became impossible to say that you were against democracy itself. You know, after World War II, we had just, you know, gone, to, you know, fought, you know, fought this enormous war for uh, for democracy. You couldn't say you were against democracy any longer. So they needed a new word to describe what they what they disliked about democracy. And the word they settled on was populism. And in America, you will often see the word. It applied in this disdainful way, not only to Donald Trump and his supporters, uh, but to uh, uh, people on the left as well. It's a way of sort of disqualifying any uh, mass movement of working people. It's a way of sort of looking down on any mass movement of working people. And that sort of mythology uh, is – it goes with the way the word is used today. You can't uh, do away with it. Uh, you can't separate 
the word from that um, sort of stereotype. Yeah, speaking with Thomas Frank, uh, author of a new book called People Without Power, The War on Populism and the Fight for Democracy. And I should say it, it also goes by the title, The People Know, A Brief History of Anti-Populism Over in the United States. And, and this brings us up to, I suppose, the present where we're in a really bizarre situation. I mean, particularly at the moment, as you know, your president is is in hospital and um, you know there, there's an election on, on the horizon. I just but... drove by the hospital on my way home from the grocery store by the way did you really it's in my it's in my neighborhood the hospital where he is yeah and there were all these people out in front waving flags yeah well unmasked i assume uh now that i think about it yeah i guess they weren't they weren't wearing masks but they were they were outdoors Uh, anyhow it's you know yeah yeah what a scene crazy times i mean absolutely nuts it totally is and and i mean this is the the central paradox, I suppose, of the phenomenon of, of, of Donald Trump and his sort of path to the presidency in 2016, where he became a sort of, you know, champion of workers' rights in a way and sort of appealing to what people described as, as you know, a populist kind of um, supporter base who had, you know, been disenfranchised through the way that the economy has been run for decades and that sort of thing. How is it that, that a billionaire a property tycoon came to represent those types of ideals? Oh, th- I, what a great question! We could talk about that for the whole hour, because this is this is what our our uh, conservative party in America, the Republican Party, this is what uh, has happened in the course of my lifetime. When I was a kid, it was obvious that the Republican Party stood for business interests and was you know uh, supported by wealthy people, and that the Democratic Party was identified with organized labor and with unions and you know stood for the middle what we call in America the middle class. And just in the in in these last forty years, that uh, that sort of position, those positions have been totally muddled uh, by a series of conservative leaders, Republican leaders, who present themselves as friends of working people. I mean, Ronald Reagan did this, uh, George W. Bush did this, Donald Trump did it, and Trump did it uh, very well. Now, none of them. Here's the the the, the trick: is that none of them meant it. <laughs> they uh, mm. it, it's all a sort of uh, just a, um, you know, just a, a campaign appeal. It's this sort of this way that our leaders have of, of talking here in America. But when they when they're in office, they don't actually ever follow through on it. In fact, they do the opposite. So Donald Trump went ahead and got more tax cuts for the very wealthy. And he he sort of uh, secured all of these. He deregulated all of these polluters and stuff like that. But the, uh, the what makes it so powerful is that the other side, the Democratic Party, which is the more left of our two parties, has been running away from organized labor and from the sort of, uh, 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 you know, the lives of working people, the issues that matter to working people as fast as their legs will carry them. And they've been doing this for the last 30 or 40 years and more and more identifying themselves with highly educated and very affluent Americans. And this has, you know, we've got this crazy class conflict that is going on in America that's all completely upside down, where the people who, you know, pass the legislation that is most hurtful to uh, working class people are the ones who then go out and campaign as the sort of, uh, you know, tough talking, regular guy, you know, telling it like it is 
candidates. It's just it's absolutely nuts. But that's where we are. Yeah. And the others. I'm sorry. I, you, go ahead. No. Will, will you note how the the tradition of, of pessimism for the masses has kind of allowed the the paranoid right to flower so abundantly? I think that's kind of a paraphrasing part of your book. Yeah. So it's almost provided the conditions for what we see at the moment with right ring sort of movements capitalizing on that kind of sentiment. But it's interesting too that this is very you know very much about sort of class politics, um, sort of classes playing off each other and that kind of thing. Yet you note in the book as well that class has almost sort of disappeared from the mainstream liberal agenda. Why is it yes. so invisible? Why is it? Because no one in America likes to talk about it. You know, this is the great, the land of free speech, but that's one part of one part of our shared reality that Americans find extremely uncomfortable to talk about is social class. But they also find it even more uncomfortable to talk about uh, hard economic issues. Uh, neither side likes to talk about them. It's much more fun to have these culture wars, you know, and we're, we fight constantly in this country over, well, I mean, what's the latest one? Like, wh- will you wear a mask or won't you wear a mask? Mm. And I was recently um, back in Kansas, which over the years has has become a very conservative state, a very deeply Republican state. And and it, people think that wearing a mask is somehow impinging on their freedom, and they you know they don't want to do it, and they you know they carry around pistols rather than wear masks and stuff like that. And uh, uh, but that's just the latest. I mean, we have one culture war after another in this country that speak to people. On, you know, in terms of social class, you know, they're always, if you look just beneath the surface, all the, the great culture war fights are about social class. But we can't talk about social class in the, in the, you know, openly in the ways that really matter, which is like taxation, minimum wage. Do you have the right to form a union? How well are you paid? It, it, you know, are you going to have good health care? All those things are largely off the table because our, you know, our leaders find it very uncomfortable to talk about them. It, look, we're in a situation, and I, I know I talk too much, Dylan, and I'm so sorry about that. No, 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 please, please do. <laughs> we're, we're in a situation in America, and I imagine you're going to get there eventually in Australia, but we're in a situation now in America where both of our two main parties answer to a very upper class constituency. With the Republicans, it's, you know, people of in, uh, you know who, who own oil wells and inherited wealth and own businesses and stuff like that. That's who they really care about. And with the Democrats, it's the, uh, you know, the people that run, um, you know, Silicon Valley and uh, investment banking and big pharma, you know, uh, the pharmaceutical companies, highly educated, uh, uh, affluent white collar people, which is more and more the people who run America. But so they have they each represent a different side of the upper class in this country. And neither one of them is really interested in doing what it takes to get our sort of social democracy back. They, they just don't want to do that. Yeah. I mean, that phenomenon is, is sort of very much in play in Australia, but manifests in, yeah, but, but wait, in different ways. The to that? The, we, you know what the answer to this problem is? It's populism. Yeah, well, the, America, it, the American meaning of the word. Well, it's interesting. I was going to say, I mean, it manifests particularly around uh, climate change in Australia and energy transition with sort of the, you know, the fossil fuel lobby um, carrying a whole lot of weight in terms of what types of initiatives and, and, and policy proposals the government advances. But that's a whole other issue. Um, yeah. I mean, there are, of course, you know, nasty elements to what is often termed populism and the type of reactionary sort of nativist uh, positions and, and ideals that can 
can go along with that. You, in your book, talk about the notion of ideological patience as kind of, I suppose, a way of of trying to start these conversations in a more productive way that can get more to the heart of the issue, which is about class and and the sort of very broad economic disenfranchisement that's been happening for decades. What does that look like on a practical level? Well, that's that's so ideological patience is a so there's a whole history of populist movements in America of sort of left wing mass movements of working class people, and ideological patience is something that movement you have to practice if you want to build a mass movement of you know of of ordinary people to come together for economic democracy. What's fascinating to me is that nobody wants to do that anymore. So I live, uh, I, I mentioned earlier that I live in these days in Bethesda, Maryland. This is where Donald Trump's hospital is. But it's a very, very affluent, uh, very highly educated suburb of Washington, D.C. People here are doing really well. There's, uh, and you, if you ride around the suburb, this neighborhood on your bicycle, there's no Trump signs in anyone's yard. This area is is completely gone over to the Democratic Party. But their idea of what you do with these ordinary Americans, you know, these uh, working class people is you scold them. You know, they have this kind of fantasy where they get to constantly scold ordinary Americans for, uh, you know, for for getting things wrong, uh, you know, for not saying the right word, not using the right phrase, not being Often it's for not being politically correct. Uh, these days it's often for not, you know, uh, uh, practicing, you know, proper sort of COVID uh, techniques, you know, wearing your mask, that sort of thing. But I call it – it's like the left in America is all about scolding. I call it a utopia of scolding because for them it is fulfilling in and of itself. We've got this this upper class in America that lives – to scold people, to scold the sort of lower orders and uh, remind them constantly of what inferior beings they are. And so think about it this way, Dylan. They're both uh, – and they have no interest in ideological patience. Mm. It's just all about scolding. It's all about keeping people out. And this is not a recipe for building a, a, a giant mass movement that, that could in turn secure you know, economic democracy, a social democracy. No one's interested in that. What they want to do is kick people out, shame people, humiliate people. Well, it's, it's social media. Cancel people. And for a lot of people, that's extremely fulfilling. You know, that's what they want out of politics is the right to you know, shake their finger at the lower orders. Mm. You, you mentioned towards the end of your book, uh, Bernie Sanders, as, as someone who sort of led a movement that in some way uh, captures some of the essence of the early populists in, in, I guess, you know, attempting to address some of those economic issues um, across the kind of, you know, the spectrum of, of class and, and that sort of thing. But I wonder what your perspective is now as we approach a, a, an election very, very soon. And it feels like, at least watching from afar, that the Democrats are running almost on a platform of, hey, we're just going to bring things back to normal, back to what yeah. was before Trump. I mean, yes, what does the future hold? Say that, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, so what happens? I mean, will, will we just go back to the, the status quo and, and continue as we are? Or do you see some kernels of, of hope and optimism in any sort of manifestations of politics over there at the moment? Well, you know, I, I was hopeful when I wrote the book. I was a big supporter of Bernie Sanders, you know, big fan. And he has... 
he has really changed the conversation in this country. And so let's let's give him credit for that. Uh, in the near term, though, I don't see uh, I don't really see uh, any of the sort of things that he talked about coming to pass. I mean, Joe Biden is a nice guy, and I and I hope he beats Donald Trump. He's a, he's a reassuring kind of you know parent figure, and I think we could use that nowadays. You know, an elder statesman. Uh, I could I could use that, <laughs> anyways, <laughs> after the chaos and madness of the last year. Uh, but no, he's he's explicitly said he just he just he's not going to do any any great reforms. Uh, He represents uh, going back to, you know, the way things were under Barack Obama. And, uh, you know, and, you know, I can be really cynical about that if you catch me at the right time. But these days, that sounds pretty good to me. So, yeah, understandable. (laughs) And I mean, in this book, you challenge much of the orthodoxy that has kind of latched on to a particular definition of populism. And there's been, you know, best-selling books written in, in very recent memory on this issue that haven't gone back to essentially the origins of the term and, and, and attempted to unpack what populism might or actually could mean um, in, in a different sense to how we, we typically understand it yeah, today. They never do that. They never, they never do that. Yeah, they never go back to the original meaning. Isn't that strange? It, it's really interesting because, you know, in, in academic study and so on, very much part of doing a literature review is going back to the origins of something and unpacking what's been written before that. So it is fascinating to me that this hasn't really been done so much before, but what's been the response from these types of people to your book and and the argument that you put forward? Zero, nothing. So you got to understand the the way the conversation works in America today, and the way I, I came out of academia. I got a PhD years ago, and then and then decided to go into journalism instead. But this book is me going back to my old academic research. Of course, I studied populism as a you know graduate student. That was going to be my my life, and then I turned away from it. But the the whole idea of these sort of professional uh, uh, these sort of pedagogical discourses is that you don't have to listen to outsiders, and I am technically I mean even though I have a PhD and all that I am technically an outsider because yeah. I'm not part of their group, and so they don't they don't they, I mean this is you look at professional economics you know the whole idea is that if you're not a a, a person with a PhD in economics they don't have to listen to you. I mean, that's the nature of professional discourse. And so, no, they don't have to listen and they don't listen. Isn't that an interesting comment on the very problem that you identify, though, <laughs> about the kind of yeah, siloing of, of expertise? So, look, there's, a, there's, a, there's a bigger problem here, which we also never talk about in America. And, and I don't know, maybe you talk about it in Australia, but I doubt it. And that is elite failure. You know, all of these people writing about how dangerous uh, ordinary people are and how dangerous democracy is and how dangerous populism is. Well, look, the, 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 the people who have really screwed up uh, in my lifetime, anyways, are the you know the professional ruling elite. These are the people that gave us not only Vietnam but the Iraq War, uh, the, you know the f- global financial crisis. Australia, ordinary Australians didn't cause that. It was these guys on Wall Street right here in America did that. These were guys with advanced degrees, guys who were you know members of a professional you know elite. They did that. Uh, they screwed it up, and then they got bailed out. Not one of them got in trouble for what they did. They, they, they committed epic fraud and they got away with it and they're all still there. Uh, and, you know, if you're an ordinary person, you know, you, you lost everything, but they got bailed out and you go right down the list. All of the sort of extre- horrible uh, problems that we've been having in America where they, you know, we had this opioid epidemic. I don't know if you know about yeah, this, but yeah. these are 
prescription drugs that were prescribed for people <laughs> and uh, by by someone who you know by a doctor somewhere and they were manufactured you know deliberately to get people hooked by a pharmaceutical company somewhere you know these are all of our great disasters in recent years were engineered for us by our our highly educated elite whether we're talking about economists or uh, wall street uh, bankers or uh, or or medical doctors you know that's that's who did all these things to us and i think people have a right to be angry about that and the question we should be asking is not why are people so mad <laughs> it's why do elites keep screwing things up you know that's 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 what my that's what i write about anyways yeah i mean the problem you identify and the the scorn that can be attributed to the masses or people who might you know at this point in time for example support a particular political party is definitely something that that happens and i think a lot of people find it too easy and comfortable to slip into that as well but the stakes are really high you know you you, you get bad governments out of that and and bad politics and a bad society oh, yeah. as well oh, yeah, yeah. Look at just look what what's happened now. I mean, so the thing is, the the answer is not uh, you know do like Barack Obama did and just do whatever the experts tell you because the experts act in their own interest. You know, they bail their buddies out, they get every, they get their friends off the hook, and they they stick it to everybody else. Yeah. And but the answer is not to do what Donald Trump does, has done, <laughs> just ig ignore them. You know, just ignore the advice of people who know what they're talking about. There's got to be another way in between these two. And yes, you know what I'm about to say. What that way is. I do. It's populism, I suspect. <laughs> exactly. Um, I exactly. could keep talking to you for a much longer, but we do have to go because we've got a, a couple more guests to get to in the show. But um, thanks so much for, for coming on Triple R and having a chat about these really important issues it's my today. Pleasure. And I, I just wish I could be there in person because we, I would spin records for you just like in the old days. We uh, would have so much fun. That'd be amazing. Well, you have you have been here in the past in um in the early two thousands. At some point, came came through these walls, which is um, we very much look forward to the day when we can have guests back in the studio. It um it makes us feel a lot better and less lonely when when we can do yes, that. Um, absolutely, but, I'm looking forward to that as well. Yeah, totally. Well, um, stay safe over there and keep an eye on what's going on down at the hospital down the streets and uh, let us know if the president's discharged at any point and and um, keep an eye on things uh, for us down there from afar. But um, thanks so much and congrats on the book. All right. Thank you very much, Dylan. Cheers. Thomas Frank there, author of a new book, People Without Power, The War on Populism and the Fight for Democracy. It's also called The People Know, A Brief History of Anti-Populism Elsewhere. And you can pick up a copy of that at bookstores, I'm sure, or online. Triple. Ah. The autonomous region of Bougainville has a new president with former commander of the Bougainville Revolutionary Army, Ishmael Torama, triumphing in the first election held since last year's referendum on independence, where 98% of voters supported the country seceding from Papua New Guinea. Torawama will now work to progress the independence negotiations and navigate the tricky question of the future of the multi-million dollar, multi-billion dollar rather, Panguna copper mine. The environmental damage caused by the mines operations and disputes over the lack of revenue flowing to the island's inhabitants was a factor in the decades-long civil war that ended in 1998, accounting for around 20,000 lives. This also comes amid news last week that over 150 Bougainville community members have filed a complaint with Australian authorities over Rio Tinto's responsibility for the enduring impacts of, of the mine, citing water poisoning and destruction of sacred sites. Leanne Girari is a Papua New Guinea 
Sydneyan journalist. She's written on this for The Guardian and the Lowy Institute and joins me today via Skype. Great to have you on the show, Leanne. Thank you for having me. And so let's start with the recent election. Who is Ishmael Torawama? Well, as, as you said in your intro, he um, he is a former BRA, Bougainville um, Revolutionary Army um, fighter. So he's he's been known around Bougainville for as being a leader in um, in basically the rebellion, as well as um, after after the, the decade long civil war, um, basically helping to rebuild Bougainville. So, as I said, he is he's known in Bougainville as a, as a as a leader, and so him being voted in president now, it's it's really no surprise to to the people. And you note in your article for the Lowy Institute's interpreter that people recognise that he kind of quietly set about helping to rebuild Bougainville after the peace agreement with PNG was brokered. Was that a real asset for him in this election and, and one of the reasons why people might have been drawn to him? Definitely, um, definitely. As, as I mentioned in my article, um, when I spoke to a friend from Bougainville, um, she she basically said that you know people voted him in because they know who he is. He didn't leave Bougainville. He stayed, um, as you said, and and worked to broker peace and and the peace agreement between Bougainville and Papua New Guinea. He was an instrumental part in that. So they know him, they trust him, and they trust that Bougainville is now in good hands with him. And so one of the big things that he'll need to manage is the independence process and. Yeah. Uh, uh, PNG Prime Minister James Marape said that he looked forward to continuing consultations on that issue. What's your view on how that might progress in the next few years? I mean, we have an election coming up, so you know whether Prime Minister Marape is going to be, you know, going to still be there, you know, to discuss these peace talks and this um, Bougainville's um, independence is yet to be seen. Um, however, the Marape um, now Basile government is keen on on um, discussing this with Torama, and he, he he did say as much last week, or I think if, yeah, a couple of days ago when he visited Bougainville. So, I mean, with the current government, I am I am confident with the with the talks that are going to take place. However, like I said, it's. It's going to be changing in a couple, in a year or two, the, the government of Papua New Guinea. So, yeah, it's just time will tell, I guess. Yeah, and I guess kind of broadly speaking, how do people on the, the PNG mainland uh, view the prospect of Bougainville's independence? I mean, I'd say it's 50-50. Um, a lo- a half, half of them want Bougainville to remain just because, you know, in, in Melanesian society, we we view them as ours, you know, as part of our family. And so sort of letting them go would be to, you know, leave or let let a daughter or a son leave. So like I said, it's 50-50. Half of them want, still want Bougainville to remain um, under or as a, a, as a region of Papua New Guinea. However, there's another half that says, you know what, no, let them get what they want. You know, they wanted this for a long time, even before the, the even before our independence um, in 1975. So that's 
that's you know that's 50 50 right now yeah and this election in in bougainville was also a parliamentary election as well as a presidential election and i, I note from from reading your pieces that there were quite a few millennial candidates elected this time around were yeah. people particularly energized uh, or young people particularly energized following on from the independence referendum is that is that a reason why there might have been more young people elected Oh, definitely. I mean, when I was in Bougainville um, early, late last year, sorry, late last year, it was basically the youth population that was, you know, um, sort of pushing the referendum, um, um, sort of, yeah, the the campaigns for it and sort of the awareness around it. Um, The youth definitely have a big say. And in this in this election, the presidential as well as um, the, the elections that the recent elections, they definitely had a big say and they, you know, sort of went out and um, showed up in force, in numbers. Yeah. And as well as the the road to independence, what were some of the other really significant issues that played into the the election? Um, besides the road to independence? Yeah. Um, it's, it's, I feel that, you know, after, after the President Momis, um, you know, when, when it was decided he couldn't run again. And basically, I feel that um, not just as a Papua New Guinean looking from the outside in, I feel that it is a significant election because of the fact that, you know, it isn't, it isn't the, uh, for lack of a better word or be- better term, the old dogs um, that are, you know, that have, like it, that is president or that have um, sort of went into campaign for the elections. It's, it's a newer blood, you know, it's fresh blood, and that is the biggest significance. You know, the people of Bougainville wanted change. They want new blood in the um, ABG, in the House of Representatives, and they have basically shown it through this elections and through their, their voting. Yeah, really interesting. Speaking with Leanne Jurari, Papua New Guinean journalist and media communications specialist, talking all about Bougainville's new president and also what the future might hold for that region as it moves towards independence and negotiates that with Papua New Guinea. And I noted that a newly elected member, uh, Theonila uh, Matbob, is um, yep. she's the, the member for Loro, which is the region where the Panguna mine lies, and she's one of those... Um, more than 150 people from Bougainville who raised a complaint with Australian authorities over Rio Tinto's culpability on the ongoing impacts of the mine. How significant yeah. is that in, and how does that play into the types of political dynamics uh, within Bougainville? It's really significant because she's a young woman. Um, she's you know young, educated. She's a social worker. She's been um, in working in and around Bougainville for the better part of a decade now. And I, I feel like, and this is my opinion, I feel that she, you know, speaking to her as well and, you know, knowing a little bit about her, I feel that she can't be bought. Um, and, you know, it just shows that she, it goes to show that the younger generation and her generation and her in particular, um, when they, when she does sort of go into discussions about the real, you know, Panguna reopening, mm. I feel like she is going to stay true to her beliefs and her people's beliefs. Um, and so Rio Tinto or even, you know, the um, ABG and Papua New Guinean governments will have a fight um, on their hands with Theonilla. 
Yeah, and do you have a sense of, of what she kind of might want out of that? Because I understand some people might want the mine to reopen for kind of economic reasons and that sort of thing, but we also know there's yeah. been really disastrous health and, and um, environmental consequences that have flown from, from the mess that was left there. Yeah. I mean, speaking to her a couple of, basically after she, she won the elections, um, she did mention to me that, look, she wants what the people, what her people want. And, you know, her signing that, um, that petition last week was just another um, sort of, you know, her showing her stance, I guess. Mm. And, um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's coming from that. I mean, seeing, seeing all of that, I feel like she... I mean, from from my opinion, like I said, talking to her, I feel like it's going to be a no for now. And that's that's pretty much what she said when we spoke. Um, She's sort of moving to to shelve that, shelve the reopening um, of Panguna until their demands are met or until, you know, discussions have, you know, um, are clear about what's going to happen in terms of the people, um, the benefit of the people and the environmental, um, yeah, damages or the environmental... Yeah. Yeah. It's such an interesting time in the history of Bougainville. Have Parliament, has Parliament sat yet? And, and I mean, has the President been sworn in at this stage or is that still yet to come? He, ha- he was sworn in. I think it was late last week. Um, and he's chosen his, um, his House of Representatives. And among them um, are two females. One of them is Theonilla. So, yeah, there's, there's he has been swanning late last week. Yeah, interesting. Well, um, thank you so much for enlightening us about what's happening over there. It's, um, it's really great to have someone who understands the nuances um, of politics on the ground as well and, and what might happen in particular with the, the Panguna mine um, going forward too. And, and we look forward to checking in with you again to see how the independence progress um, process might be um, progressing into the future too. It's, um, it's been really great having you on Triple R. Sure. Thanks, Dylan. Nice talking to you, too. You too. Leanne Girari, the journalist uh, based over in PNG, talking about Bougainville. Uh, They have a new president um, who, as you just heard, was recently sworn in and a new parliament as well. And um, this comes as there's been a a complaint lodged in Australia with Rio Tinto's culpability for the uh, mess that was left at the Panguna copper mine as well, which is having certain implications and, and negative consequences for people who live near that mine. Too. So, um, yeah, really interesting insights on what's going on in our region. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.